Are you an aspiring writer, artist, or musician who dreams of sharing your craft with the world, but struggles with self-doubt? Or maybe you're a leader in your industry, but you feel like you're walking this path alone without a community to support and challenge you. In this episode of Women of the Bluegrass, I'm joined by Marianne Worthington, a teacher, editor, and writer who co-founded an online literary magazine and has received numerous awards for her poetry and writing. Marianne shares her insights on her personal and professional journey and the importance of finding like-minded individuals to walk alongside you on your creative or leadership journey. Join us as we explore the power of community and the role it plays in helping us reach our goals and become the leaders we're meant to be. I'm your host, Jordan Carmack, a leadership development and communication skill coach in London, Kentucky, and you're listening to Women of the Bluegrass, a leadership development podcast for and about women leading the way in Kentucky industries. My guest today is Marianne Worthington. She grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and moved to Southeast Kentucky in 1990, where she works as a teacher, editor, and writer. In 2009, she co-founded Still the Journal, an online literary magazine publishing writers, artists, and musicians with ties to the Appalachian region. She received the Al Smith Fellowship from the Kentucky Arts Council and the Appalachian Book of the Year Award for her poetry chapbook, Larger Bodies Than Mine. She was awarded grants from the Kentucky Foundation for Women and the Appalachian Sound Archives Fellowship at Berea College. With Silas House, she co-edited Piano in a Sycamore, Writing Lessons from the Appalachian Writers Workshop, a craft anthology from teachers at the Appalachian Writers Workshop from the last 40 years. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Oxford American, Calyx, Grist, Wreck and Review, Cheap Pop, Appalachian Review, Feed, Ethel, and Chapter 16, among other places. Her 2021 poetry collection, The Girl Singer, weaves feminism, Appalachian culture, and country music together in a lyrical celebration that is both stirring and startling. She teaches communication studies and media writing to college students, and often teaches poetry and nonfiction writing classes for workshops and conferences. Let's dive in. I am so excited to introduce everyone to my friend, mentor, former colleague, Marian Worthington. Uh, Marian, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for inviting me. So we worked together for several years, which was an amazing experience, especially because I had also had you as a professor in college. Um, and I just want to take a moment to publicly say Thank you so much for investing in me, both when I was a student and then also as a mentor, as a faculty member. Um, I can honestly say there were so many times I would think to myself and say, okay, what would Marianne do? <laughs> and that was my approach. So thank you for the investment that you made in me and my professional growth um, over the last decade and a half. It's really sweet for you to say that, Jordan, because sometimes I would say the same things um, to myself about you, like, well, what would Jordan do if this, if this was happening? <laughs> so um, the feeling's mutual, I guess. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, I have to say you had this amazing reputation as being someone that students could go to and they knew that they were going to walk away better writers, that their work was going to improve after they worked with you, um, particularly on those senior projects, yes. um, the senior <laughs> colloquium. Um, those yeah. were, we had some great times working on, working on those. Um, now you retired from teaching, um, a couple of years ago now. Do you miss it? Um, well, to be honest, no, I don't. <laughs> 
I guess what I don't miss is um, getting up in the mornings, getting ready, uh, getting myself to campus, you know, uh, going up and down the stairs three and four times a day, uh, <laughs> teaching four classes a semester. That that part I don't miss, you know, the so. Um, but, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll think about my students and wonder how they're doing. But mostly um, I'm very, very happy to be retired. Yeah. Well, I can understand that because it I don't think it's slowed down. Some people retire because they want to, you know, lay on a beach somewhere, but but not you. You've got even more going on maybe now than when you were teaching full time. Well, I don't know that I've got more going on, but I have more time to devote to the things that I want to be going on, which for me is mostly reading and writing. So I have a lot more time to do that. And I'm grateful for that. And that you are absolutely doing. So between poetry readings and classes across Eastern Kentucky that are focused on your work, but also supporting the work of others. Um, I, I was just looking through on, on your Facebook and I mean, Writers Association meetings and all of the things that you are doing with still the online literary magazine that focuses on mm-hmm. Appalachian literature and music. Um Wow, you have a ton going on in terms of just pouring into our our literary culture. Um, and so in, the, in our conversations today, we're going to talk about some of those things. Um, and Women of the Bluegrass is a leadership development podcast, but I love what you are doing to promote the literary culture for Appalachia um, and, and leading in a subtle way. I know whenever I asked you to be on this podcast, you were like, wait a minute, what? I wouldn't even call myself a leader. But um, when I think about people who are advocating so strongly for um, other authors and for this community, you are one of the people that um, came to mind immediately. Silas House, the uh, newest poet laureate in Kentucky as well as one of those people like So I'm really excited to talk more um, about those things too with you today. Um, But I'd like to go back to, to the beginning of, of your story um, and, and trace some of these roots. Um, So your work at the girl singer, um, a lot of those poems originate in your observations as a child growing up in in Knoxville, watching performers like Patsy Cline and the Carters Mm -hmm. um, as they're navigating fame and music and sexism and all of these things. And then you, you have an amazing way of connecting these to your own personal experiences. Um, So my question for you is when did you first begin writing about these things that you observed growing up? Um, Probably not until we moved to Kentucky in 1990. I mean, I took creative writing classes in college, but I wasn't a writing or English major. And in grad school, I focused on uh, rhetoric and interpersonal and communication studies and media studies and not really creative writing. So it wasn't until we moved to Kentucky and I started taking classes at the Carnegie Center in Lexington. And I would drive up there once a week for, I did this for a, a few years and found this community of writers in, in Kentucky that I had just never had before. And it's a really strong network of writers. So that's kind of how it got started um, in terms of creative writing. It, it really wasn't until I was all grown up, had a child, and um, and we moved to Kentucky. Yeah. So that's sort of gonna, how it started. I was going to ask about that. Um, I think your daughter is, is close in age to me. Um, and... 
it sounds like that timeline would have coincided with with motherhood and to begin reflecting on your own mother and the women in in your mm-hmm. family. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. how maybe that experience influenced your your writing and your embracing of those stories? Yeah, I, I mean, um, yeah, I I think all women struggle with being a parent and wanting to do creative things, whether it's writing or, you know, rock climbing or what, you know, whatever it is we struggle with and working, you know, and working full time. It's, it's the age old story of the parent who must work full time in order to feed the child, (laughs) you know, and house and clothe the child. You have to work. So where do you find time to be creative? It was real. It was really challenging. Luckily, um, I had a spouse who I have a spouse who was sort of a um, the kind of parent that would say, well, you go on and do this and I'll take care of the baby. You know, I mean, I remember when our daughter was born, we were still in Indiana and we were able to work out our teaching schedules those first two years so that one of us could be home with the baby and the, while the other one was teaching because um, we didn't have family where we were. We didn't have anybody to rely on except ourselves. It was easier when we got to Kentucky and, and our daughter was a little bit older and my parents were just an hour away. So that was a little bit, that was a little bit easier, but yeah, I mean, it is really hard to juggle how do you work full time? How do you be good at working? How do you excel at working? And where do you find the time to be creative? So mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is, Jordan. No, you just do I don't it. Know the- you know, <laughs> you just do yes. it. <laughs> you do. At the end of the day, you prioritize those um, outlets that give you a sense of identity. That's not just motherhood. Um or even being somebody else's spouse. Um, and so uh, I, I loved that you prioritized that and even started exploring that some in those early difficult years. Um, I think that sets a great example for others. I know I came to you multiple times that first, first year of my daughter's life about how am I supposed to do this? What does this look like? I'm trying to, to juggle these things. Um, one of the things I'd like to talk a little bit more about the girl singer, if that's okay, okay, because one of the things that you do so well is to capture some of these mundane experiences, these daily experiences. Sometimes I think we focus on the large transformative events like the birth of our children or um, marriages um, to, to say, Hey, this was transformative or, or even negative experiences like death um, or, or tragedy and say, well, that transformed my life, but you're able to capture these smaller moments and give them large meaning. Um, and I love the way you do that. Why do you think you focus in on some of these little moments instead when you write? Because I've been trained as a poet, and that's what poets are supposed to do, to observe, to be attentive, and to find some sort of larger meaning that people can uh, grasp onto from some little experience. You know, like I was talking with a friend this morning about the rabbits in our backyard, and everybody this time of year has rabbits in their backyard. And, but as a poet, you know, my task would be 
to maybe write about those rabbits, but then find a way to make that a larger lesson about living in the world. So I think that's what poets are trained to do is to give voice to those moments that we all have. And maybe we can identify with those, but it, it feels like our own experience rather than just the poet's experience. Mm. That requires a pretty hefty dose of self-awareness, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. How did you develop that over time? Um, I don't know. I don't know, but I mean, I had really good writing teachers. Mm. Um, in college, for instance, I studied with a poet, uh, Jeff Daniel Marion, and after I graduated from college, then he was my friend for 35 years. So, you know, I, even though I wasn't studying with him, I could call him. He was a great telephone buddy. You know, we talked a lot on the phone. We exchanged letters. We visited back and forth. Um, so it was great to have that, that a, a person like that in my life. And I had other people like that, too, in my life who are writers. And so I just began to surround myself with writers. And when you're around people who are writing, especially those who are writing for a living, you just figure out, you know, what you are and what you can do and what you can't do. You soak up all of that by observation. They're modeling this self-awareness for you. And then you can look at your own life and start to see those different puzzle pieces uh, and reflect on that. And the role of encouragement too, it sounds like their encouragement of you to look for those experiences. Right. And I mean, I have like right now, I'm, I'm in a group with three other women and we exchange writing. Um, We try to do it once a month. And so we exchange writing and then we have a meeting we, and we, you know, we critique each other's stuff. We share resources about where we can submit our things. We cheer each other on, you know, so it's really that to have those sorts of relationships with people who are working in the same areas that you're working in, I think is really important. Mm. And so did you find that those came out of the Lexington relationships in the early years or did you sort of find each other later in life? Well, yes. Part of, part of uh, learning about that community was um, going back and forth to Lexington. Um, But then I also met people in and around Whitley County who were writers and um, you know, I also went to, um, I started in about 1998. I started going every summer to the Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Heinemann Settlement School in Knott County, Kentucky. I still go. I've been going 26 years. Um, This year, I'm actually one of the teachers. Um, I'm going to teach a a week-long poetry class, so I'll have students this year instead of being the student myself. But finding those relationships with other people who lived close, closer to me than Lexington was really important too. Yeah. So you're just now becoming this teacher in one of these classes. What, for those students that are going to be sitting in with you, um, what's one thing you hope that they're going to take away from that week of time? Um, I think maybe what we just talked about, about how to observe and be attentive and be fully um, 
committed to documenting anything that other people might think of as mundane, but that you can give voice to and give meaning to. Because I think it comes back to that shared, that shared experience. I'm, I have not attempted to write poetry in a decade and a half, maybe more probably, but um, I have an email newsletter that I associate with this podcast. And in the first section, it's just a personal note of some kind, some personal Mm -hmm. experience that I've had that I connect to a larger theme or communication skill or something. And so as you're saying this, I'm sort of thinking, well, I don't put that into poetry, but that's kind of what I'm doing to just build a sense of, hey, we're in this together. You're ex- you aren't alone in your experiences. And here's how I'm learning and growing from mine. And, and it seems it, like you're doing it, the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that, that's not unique to poetry. You're absolutely right. It's unique to all creative writing. It's unique. I mean, that's what novelists try to do, short story writers, creative nonfiction writers, editors. We try to find a way to connect with audiences so that we can invite the reader into our words and our experiences. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, or you're brand new, you might've heard me introduce myself as a leadership and communication skill coach. But what does that mean? I partner with individuals and organizations to equip their people to confidently lead and communicate in order to improve organizational outcomes and experiences. This could be through motivational keynote speeches, in-depth training workshops on tangible skills like public speaking and listening, or providing research-backed leadership assessments to help individuals and teams work more effectively together. If you'd like to hear more about the authentic leadership and communication skills training that I can provide for your team, I'd love to talk to you. You can shoot me an email at jordan at jordancarmack.com or check out the link in the show notes at any time. Hope to hear from you soon. This seems so important and empowering, particularly in today's context where, because of, I have this conversation with, with female friends all the time, you know, 300 years ago, we might've done laundry side by side at the river and had, we actually have those shared experiences, but now so many of these daily tasks are done independently, whether it's Mm -hmm. raising children, doing laundry, doing dishes, some of these things that might've been shared in a different age aren't shared anymore. And so through these literary experiences, um, through these mentoring um, relationships or these these communities, we get a glimpse of what it means to support one another mm-hmm. in in everyday everyday life. It feels more important to me now than it has in many years, especially coming out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And during the pandemic, one thing that happened to me personally is, I I began to see that a lot of places that were offering writing classes that used to be in person that you would have to travel to, those all became online. And so whenever I could afford it, I just started taking as many writing classes as I could. And I developed a whole new series of friends and acquaintances by taking more classes online. Um, So that was a great thing. I probably wrote more during the pandemic, and not to say that the pandemic is over, but during right. those, you know, those first two years, I probably wrote more than I had in 10 years, you know, in those wow. two years, just because I was with other people who were also doing this, you know, and I had mm-hmm. committed to this class and I had deadlines and, you know, 
Um, right. And it helped also that I didn't have a little child to raise as well. I mean, it really did. I'm, I'm going to be honest, you know, that sure. I didn't, you know, that I didn't have anybody else to look after, mm-hmm. you know, that was another thing. I mean, it's not just for me in my age, it was not just finding a way to be creative and raise my child, but then my parents started to get sick, you know? And so there was a whole decade of caregiving that I had to devote to my parents, which I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm grateful for those experiences, but it mm-hmm. ate into the creative sense. Mm-hmm. It it does seem like, especially, I think they call them like the sandwich generation where they're still yes. caring. You come, you begin the season of caregiving for your children. And then sometimes even before that's finished, you're caregiving for aging parents. Right. And it takes sometimes a couple of decades before you have that a single sense of identity again, yes. maybe where yes. you have the time to devote to these things. But it right. seems like it was a perfect storm. You are an avid learner um, and wanted to seek these things out. But then you are surrounded by a community of particularly other women who were also writing mm-hmm. regularly and mm-hmm. then had that time to devote. And so the the production, the output, it was a perfect storm of things for you. It really um, was. Yeah. So... When the Girl Singer was finally published, and I remember mm-hmm. getting to attend the reading at the Wrigley and just celebrating you, um, what was that like for you? Um, it was unbelievable because I'd been working on these poems for a decade, some of them, and a lot of them had been published and I'd sort of forgotten about them. And um, and so I was approached by um, the University Press of Kentucky to um put to submit a manuscript and and I, at first i thought no i can't i can't do that um but then i remembered what my poetry teacher at carson newman jeff daniel marion had said to me once about that as a writer i was too constipated <laughs> that i that i held on to stuff you know and i held on and held on and held on and i needed to just let that go um so I did. I finally just put together a manuscript and submitted it. And then I had a really good editor and we worked, you know, through making all the things that you have to do to get a manuscript ready, which was a lot more involved than, than I could ever know. And then there were people at the press who actually worked to publicize the book. The publicists there were wonderful. They got me, um, you know, appearances. I went to the Kentucky Book Festival for the first time as a, you know, as a participant. Well, I had gone like maybe 20 years before that as a, when I had my chat book published, but um, not since then. And um, so it was great, you know, and it was really, it was also really scary, you know, so. And the book came out in November of 2021, so we weren't quite finished with the pandemic yet. So there were a lot of online things that I did at first. And really only now have I started being, you know, um, writing and and teaching uh, writing in person and doing some in-person events. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll only see those continue. But I think I just, I've noticed that, 
having the virtual to supplement, even in this day, makes it more accessible to a wider variety of learners. It really uh, does. And writers. And so I hope it's a both and as we move forward too, because of, because of that, not everybody can. I'm just, just because of my season, I am thinking about the moms who might be able to attend a late night online class, but can't make the drive. Um, and so I think the accessibility that's been afforded and the flexibility that's been afforded to us is just so valuable for, um, creators of all kinds, um, in this space. Um, so let's talk about the still, um, journal. Okay. Um, because, one of the things you you have uh, have been an, an author, you're an author now in your own right, and you're able to celebrate and do these things. Um, but you have been co-editor of the Still since 2009. Is that right? Since its inception. Yes. yes. And so, in your position there, you get to empower and celebrate and point everybody else's attention to um, new creators in Appalachia. Um, can you tell me more about how this um, how this journal began? Sure. So I was friends with um, two other writers in Eastern Kentucky, Silas House and Jason Howard. Um, They both teach at Berea College now. Um, But at the time, they were in London. And we were just sitting around um, Jason's kitchen table one night, just kind of visiting. And I think it was Silas said, you know, I want to start a literary journal. And we could do it free. You know, there's all these free websites. and and let's just do it. And so we said, okay, you know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't think too hard about it. We didn't I love it. plan too, too hard about it. But, but Silas said, I'll be the fiction editor. And Jason Howard was the creative nonfiction editor. And I was the poetry editor, but we also uh, did an interview. With, so, so we decided, okay, we'll publish three times a year. This is in 2009. We published three times a year. We'll publish poetry, nonfiction, and fiction in each episode, each issue, but also we'll try to do an interview with a writer. We want to feature visual artists as well, and we want to feature musicians, and all with ties to to some tie with Appalachia. And we're not too strict about that. Sometimes a writer's only connection to Appalachia might be their press, you know? So we don't take writing that is just about Appalachia. We encourage all people to, um, to submit um, as long as they can claim some kind of connection to the region. And the Appalachian region is vast. It's 13 states, 400 and something counties, you know? Um, So that's how it started around a kitchen table in London, Kentucky, you know, late one night and it just grew from there now since then um jason howard uh, edits appalachian review at berea college and um silas left a couple of years ago to focus more uh, intently on his own writing so our creative nonfiction editor is karen mcelmurray and our fiction editor is julia watts who um also has a connection to um, Whitley County, because that's where she was raised. And her father, Rayford Watts, was chair of the English department for many years. So I've known Julia Watts since she was a teenager. Um, so that's where we are now. And so it's been almost 15 years. 
Wow. And so what has been their most rewarding part of your investment in, I imagine it's a significant time investment. Um, what's been the biggest reward for you after watching this grow after so long? Well, for me personally, I think it's just seeing people voluntarily submit work, you know, that I and the other editors have the privilege of reading, um, that people kind of know who we are and, um, and submit. So for me on a personal level, that's, that's really been, uh, joyful, but also it's been so much fun to be like the first publisher of someone, you know, like, um, college students or young writers, um, We've done a couple of episodes where uh, issues where we focused on high school writers. Um, so that's been fun too, you know, to, to give a space to um, young people or people who are inexperienced mm -hmm. and don't have many publications. And I imagine you get a wide diversity of experiences from Appalachia. We do. Being, yeah. being Appalachian yeah. is there's not a narrow definition of that anymore. No. There's so much more to it. Um, and I think you provide a space to showcase that diversity of expression yes. and experience um, in a way that doesn't happen often. Right. And that's sort of been our goal from the very beginning. We didn't really want to publish the kinds of, of writing that people might expect we would publish like, you know, Mamaw sitting on the porch smoking a corncob pop while, <laughs> you know, Papaw's off hunting with his rifle and his, you know, uh, and watching out for the revenuers who are moonshining. I mean, you know, all the stereotypes about Appalachian literature, we didn't want that at all, you know. So it's been really fun to publish writers from all kinds of backgrounds and who have all kinds of identities because they live in Appalachia too. And absolutely. And so that's been really rewarding, really rewarding. I think there's a movement these days, particularly in, in Appalachia to say, you know, we aren't the stereotype that has been perpetuated in, in media for the last 50, 60 years. It's, it's different. It's more diverse than you would expect. Mm -hmm. And this is an opportunity to share that from a written perspective. Um, yes. So thank you for giving voice to that. Thank you. So um, as we wrap up, I, I've just got two quick questions um, okay. for you. So for those of us who aren't writers, and I wouldn't put myself in this category at this season of life, maybe another day. Um, What's one way we can really support the literary community in Appalachia? Uh, one thing is you can read the the magazines and the and the literary journals that are out there. A lot of them are online. Um, you can you can just Google, you know, and search for them. You can support them by not only reading them, but then you know take the time to write the editors an email. Hey, I've been reading this. I really enjoyed this. You know, let the editors know that you're reading. Um, if you have the means, the financial means, another way is to support um, writers who might have websites where you could be a Patreon, you know, a supporter, or you can buy their books. You that's you know that's the the main thing, and buy their books from their publishers, not from big box 
places and you know what I mean and I'm not going to say it. Um, <laughs> but, but from indep- or from independent bookstores, you know, um, for instance, uh, Red the Spotted Red Spotted Newt, Newt in yep, Hazard, my friend uh, uh, Mandy, who owns that store, uh, she has a bookshop.org page. You know, you, if you're going to buy books online, buy from bookshop.org and, and set your settings to an independent bookseller in your community. Um, and that's only, of course, if you have the financial means and maybe you don't. But um, find out where there are poetry readings or other types of literary readings and attend those. Um, show up. You know, come in for the virtual readings, um, come for the in-person readings. So I think there's all kinds of ways you can do it without having to give money. You know, that's good. If you have the means, you should. (laughs) But a lot of us don't have those kinds of means. But Right. Or on fixed incomes for a variety of reasons, yes. but really being yes. present and using your voice to advocate on behalf of these writers and amplify um, exactly. their experiences, um, sharing Facebook posts and those things even. But I love your idea, um, especially about setting that setting for the local bookstore. That's right. super helpful. Um, you know, um, very quickly, I'll just say that the Wrigley in Corbin has started a poetry reading series once a month. And you can find out about it on their Facebook page. Um, The first one, well, we had kind of a trial run two months ago. And then uh, in April, we had a writer from Lexington, Johnny Lackey. And that's going to happen once a month. And so it's great. And there's an open mic, you know, so there's a featured reader. And then there's an open mic. And at this last time, um, this last month, I met... um, three or four people that I didn't know about who are writing in the community, you know? So it's great. That's another way that we can support each other. Amazing. All great recommendations. Um, Well, I'll have, I I really want to ask you this, this last question. So even if it goes a little bit long, I want to take this time. Um, What words of encouragement do you have for particularly women who are interested in writing, not necessarily writing professionally, but just leaning into some of the things we were talking about at the very beginning, um, about that identity and creative outlets. I think it's really important to be able to trust that you have a voice and that what you want to write about is important, that your own memories and your own experiences are valid. And if you want to write about them, you should, and and somewhere, somehow, someday, somebody's going to find what you've written and it's going to resonate with them. So I guess I would say trust your own voice. Trust that you have a voice and trust that you have something that you want to say that people will, um, you know, relate to. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this podcast than than that right there. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and your own giftings and for amplifying the voice of others. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jordan. You might not know this, but it took me over a year to get up the nerve to start this podcast. I was so worried that I wouldn't have anything to say, that my voice or my perspective simply wasn't important or necessary. 
I realize now that this podcast has been just as much for me as it has been for showcasing the stories of others. I'm learning to find my own voice, share more openly and authentically with others, and intentionally take note of what I'm learning and where I'm growing. This self-awareness is something we should all cultivate because it enables us to begin to see the marvelous and the mundane and amplify the unifying experiences that unite people to say, yes, that resonates with me. I've been there. So maybe, just maybe, we feel a little bit less alone and a little bit more seen. So maybe this is you. You have a few chapters written sitting in a folder on your desktop somewhere or poems written in a journal that you dream of one day sharing. Maybe music is your gift and you're thinking about writing songs or performing live. Perhaps it's painting or clay or jewelry making. I'm here to tell you that your art matters. Your perspective of the world, how you interact with and interpret it, it matters. So here's the action step you can take today. Find one other like-minded person you can share this with. In some circles, they call these mastermind groups, but in the South, we've also called them kitchen table groups, writing circles, discipleship groups. In other words, we get together with people who encourage and challenge us to pursue what matters most to us and walk this journey together. Faith, writing, art, whatever our passion or craft is. Now you might be thinking, Jordan, what does this have to do with leadership? Here's the deal. If you're walking by yourself, you're less likely to notice if you've taken a wrong turn, celebrate when things go well, or buckle down when things get tough. I mean, at least with your me. Maybe you're superhuman in that way. But most of us, people, especially leaders, need people who aren't their direct reports or their supervisors in their circle to help them grow. We've talked about mentorship before, but this is more than that. This is just a group of people gathered together, pursuing and chasing similar dreams. So in what areas are you trying to grow? And who, like Marianne, are you surrounding yourself with in order to get there? That's the big question. Until next time, go make the world a brighter place, sunshine.